verse 31, the end of the chapter. Children, here are your questions for this evening. First, why was God sending Moses back to Egypt? Two, God sent someone to help Moses with his task. What was his name? Three, when God's people heard the message he sent and, saw, and they saw the miracles, what did they do? Exodus 4, beginning in verse 18, this is the word of God. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do, not do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. There ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do thank you once again for your word. We thank you for the fact that you reveal your ways to us in your word. And as we explore this passage together tonight, Lord, we ask that you would give us insight and wisdom into your ways and the proper way to respond to you. Minister to us, we pray, through the preaching of your word, so send your Holy Spirit in this special way, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we wade back into Exodus tonight, we've already covered quite a bit of territory just in the first three chapters, and then last time, in the beginning of this chapter. I don't want to overwhelm us tonight. There's a lot here. I, I guess the saying goes it would be like drinking out of a fire hydrant if we tried to really give everything attention in this passage that we wanted to tonight, but I want to keep the flow of the narrative. Uh, this is Moses going back to Egypt, and there's a lot going on. Uh, God had called his servant Moses to serve him and go announce deliverance, not only to God's own people, but to Pharaoh himself. And as we walk through this passage, I want us to observe some things, we'll apply some things, but the fundamental take-home of this whole passage, I believe, 
is take God at his word and obey him. It's very simple, actually, even with all the things are going on here. God had already answered Moses' objections to him being the one to go into Egypt. You know that he did not want to go. God answers each one of his objections by telling him what's going to happen and how he should be prepared to go. Things are about to go down, and they're going to go down fast, but he still has the journey to take to get there. Moses himself has come a long way. At first, he wanted to take things into his own hand, uh, to do things in his own power. Now he recognizes that he needs God's power. God is ultimately the one that's going to deliver the people. Moses is beginning to understand that he's simply God's human instrument to bring about that deliverance. Uh, He's the man now. He recognizes that. He's still somewhat reticent. He's certainly not perfect, as we'll soon discover, but he's ready to go. My four points are these. Speak to my people, speak to Pharaoh, listen to your wife, and inform your leaders. So the first one, speak to my people. He's been told that he's to go first to God's people. Uh, That's his first concern. Moses' first concern is that God's people won't even listen to him. Why should they listen to me? And we covered a number of those reasons. The first thing he does, as he's been living in Midian with his father-in-law and his family for a number of years, he goes to his father-in-law, Jethro, to ask for permission. And it kind of seems funny to us in one way that an 80-year-old son-in-law is asking permission from his father-in-law to leave. But he's being respectful. He's being respectful to Jethro as his father-in-law, but also as his employer. He recognizes that when he leaves, there will be a gap there. Moses was working and working hard for Jethro as a shepherd, and now uh, Jethro would have to find a replacement. Another thing that goes on here is that he's not 100% honest with Jethro. He doesn't tell him what God told him he was going to Egypt for. He simply says he wants to go back and see that his family members are still alive, and there might be some reasons for that. There might be a trust factor there. He probably doesn't want Jethro to worry. I mean, if he was going to say, I'm taking your daughter and your grandsons back to Egypt, uh, you can imagine what might have gone through Jethro's mind. Nonetheless, Jethro gives him permission, and he gives him his blessing. Go in peace. Go with shalom. And shalom is that holistic blessing uh, that God only can give, that blessing in soul and in mind, peace of mind, and and embody, go with God's shalom. Moses' commission is that he's called by God to go and do this thing. And so there's no turning back. Uh, He's got to do it. There's no choice in the matter. And he's commissioned with a mission, again, to speak to his people, but also to speak to Pharaoh. A little application here is when God calls you to do something, do it. It's very simple. There's no turning back from what calls us, what God calls us to do. Secondly, go and speak to Pharaoh. That was another one of Moses' big concerns. Why should Pharaoh listen to him? He's the mightiest man in the world, and I'm supposed to go and tell, uh, tell Pharaoh to let, to let God's people go. Well, God tells him what to do. When you go, show the miracles. Show the miracles uh, to the people and show the miracles to Pharaoh. Miracles can be seen in two ways. One of the words is used here. They are, they are both wonders and signs. 
So if you think about it this way, that a wonder is something that's so extraordinary that it gets the people's attention. And certainly the things that Moses is supposed to do that he just saw himself gets your attention, right? A, a staff turning into a serpent, leprous hand getting healed, uh, blood, water turning into blood. All those things are things that will get the people's attention, but signs, wonders and signs, signs teach. And so you have the wonder and the sign behind it. And so the sign is there to teach Moses, to teach the Israelites, to teach Pharaoh the things that they needed to see. The people would have understood. And so when Moses goes with this staff that turns into a serpent, as we've referred to before, the cobra is the sign of power for Egypt. You can picture Pharaoh's headdress with the, the, the cobra ready to strike. Uh, he is associated with Ra, the sun god. And we have in this an example of God saying, I'm going to subdue Pharaoh and all these false gods. And then you have leprosy. Leprosy was prevalent in Egypt. And we see here that God is able to afflict and to heal. He rules over humanity. He rules over health even. And he can humble people and lift them up through these very kinds of things. In a big way, he's going to show that through the plagues that he's about to send on Egypt. And then the Nile. A literally, very literally, the life source for the Egyptian people. But superstitiously, they also believe that the Nile was a sort of god. And so this god happy, or this superstitious god, this fake god, had to be put in his place, so to speak. And so the people would learn, Moses would learn, that he could go without fear. God is with him. The people of Israel could understand that Yahweh really did send Moses. Look at these signs. Pharaoh would or should be humbled before this God to serve Yahweh instead of all these other gods. Well, Moses is told what to expect, even with these extraordinary signs. It's not going to go exactly the way that he might hope it would go. Pharaoh is going to harden his heart. Here, God makes it clear that he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And we'll see that interchange as we move forward between, between Pharaoh's own culpable, his own responsibility, his own guilt for what he does, but also the sovereign hand of God working over Pharaoh. Proverbs says that the Lord, the Lord directs the king's heart like a water course. This idea of of God's absolute sovereignty, even over the wickedness and hardness of the hearts of men. Turn to Romans chapter 9. Fair question to ask, critical question for us to understand the sovereignty of God. It's always critical to keep in mind the sovereignty of God uh, and his ultimate plan, his wisdom and his decrees and his providence. It's going to be important for us to have a sense of God's sovereignty not only moving forward in Exodus because we're going to see some things that, that are very dramatic and traumatic, <clears throat> very difficult, very devastating, and we recognize that it's all because of God's sovereign plan. Even a bigger picture when we think of eternity and God's predestinating grace and his sovereignty, something that really is beyond our grasp, <clears throat> it's something that we nonetheless need to keep in mind. That's what Paul is addressing in Romans chapter 9, this issue of God's sovereignty. So let's just pick up in verse 14. 
What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whoever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has a potter no right over the clay to make out the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? I'll just end there. The point here is is you get to a point where you're wondering, pondering, trying to wrap your mind around the absolute ultimate sovereignty of God, and there comes to a point where you have to say, who am I? to question God, and to recognize that even with the hardest things of his sovereignty to understand, ultimately it's for his glory, to show his glory, and his people can say ultimately it's for our good. Well, that's what to expect. What are you saying? What are you to say to Pharaoh? You're to say, let my son go. Let my firstborn son go. And here he refers to Israel as his very own son, and And in contrast, if you don't let them go, I will take your firstborn. And that's a theme also throughout Scripture, throughout Exodus as well, this theme of the firstborn son, the assumed heir of all things. And the message to Pharaoh is, you think that you are a son of your false god, and you think because your son is your son that he too is in line to be this god. But that's got to be straightened out. That's got to be put in place. And the warning here for Pharaoh is that your firstborn son will be taken. Now, of course, we know that Israel ultimately is God's adopted son, so to speak, that the only true son of God is the only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the covenant head of all of God's people, the way any of us become children of God ultimately. But here you see that that conflict, that contrast between God's precious son and Pharaoh's son that would be set up as this false god, this great king of the earth, needed to be brought down. Well, I guess the application here would be pay attention to what God says. So Moses is on his way now to Egypt with his family. And he's got the rod of God, now it's called, in his hand, his sta- the staff of God, reminding him that God is with him, with his presence and with his power. And something very strange happens along the way. And this is a very confusing, I'll admit, passage. Uh, it deals with Moses' helpful helpmate, Zipporah. They're traveling along and they stop at a place to stay. If you turn back to Exodus... They stop at a lodging place. And I'll read it again. Try to make sense out of it the best we can. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. 
Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now, it's very interesting to try to wrap your mind around and enter into this. I, again, will admit there's some confusion. There's a lack of information, for instance, of just what the Midianites believed, believed about circumcision. A number of scholars, a number of historians suggest that circumcision in the Midianite culture took place right before a young man was to be married, and so as an adult. And so he would get circumcised right before he was betrothed, then he would recuperate, and then he would marry. But that's to suggest that Moses and Zipporah had some conflict over this issue. And that Moses compromised, but now he's being called to account. And it's ironically Zipporah who sees the problem. Matthew Henry talks about the tension, potential tension between them. He says, it was probably the effect of Moses being unequally yoked with a Midianite who was too indulgent of her child, while Moses was too indulgent of her, that being Zipporah. Whatever the case is, Moses disobeyed somehow. We're not sure exactly why he disobeyed. Uh, we know that God is angry with him. There's a threat here that he's going to die. I can't imagine what it's like to know that God is about to kill you. It might be one thing to know that you're going to die. We all know that will come someday, and if it gets closer, we might have insight to that's going to happen. But to know that God is about to take you out, what must that have been like for Moses? Whatever the case is, there's some patience in it because God has given enough time for Zipporah to realize what's going on. It seems like Moses is, is not functioning. Maybe he's struck with some kind of affliction. Maybe there's this heavy weight that they understand is the weight of, 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 of death coming upon him. Whatever it is, there's time for Zipporah to deal with the issue. There's time for Moses to be spared. There's some form of negligence on Moses' part so serious that God is threatening to kill him. And he wants Moses to stop in his tracks and turn from his ways. Again, we don't know why, but we do know it was a violation. We're, we know that from Genesis chapter 17, that every male child was to be circumcised or to be cut off from the people of God. And so Moses was in direct violation of that command, of that sacrament. The very sign that his own child, Gershom, was included in the covenant, he was neglecting that sign. And that was a very serious issue, and, and God's leader had to be faithful in these kinds of things. The covenant head of God's people needed to be faithful in these things. To, mark, to not mark his child as a part of the covenant community was an offense to God. Well, he thankfully had a feisty and wise wife. She knew exactly what the issue was, and she goes ahead and circumcises Gershom herself on the spot. On the spot. Can't help 
but feel for poor Gershom, this quick, unceremonious circumcision. Whatever it was, it satisfied God, and God withdrew his hand, and Moses was spared. But this is a very serious issue. I think the application here would be that we need to remember that there are not only sins of commission, things that we do against God, but there are sins of omission. And I would even suggest, and I I certainly wouldn't press this hard, but in Reformed doctrine, we understand that there is a parallel between circumcision and baptism. I wouldn't press that too hard. We believe that that's the sign that our children are a part of the covenant community of God. Now, if, if someone can't wrap their minds around infant baptism... They still need to understand that if there's an adult believer who's going to profess faith, they need to receive the sacrament of baptism. There should be no delay. Of course, we believe in infant baptism. We believe that they're included in the covenant, not necessarily converted, but in the covenant of God. Whatever the case is, it's a sacrament of God. And so whether we're Reformed or whether we're Baptist, it should be taken very seriously. Finally, inform your leaders. Inform your leaders. God had already promised Moses that he would provide Aaron for him. And so in his providence, he's told him that Aaron's going to meet him. In providential convergence, your brother, your mouthpiece, is going to meet you on your way to Egypt. I can't help but think of the fact that most of us probably have one person, if not many people in our lives, that we say God providentially brought them into our life. And it was actually used, hopefully, to change our life for the better. I can testify to a number of people that God has put in my life that have been very profitable for my soul. And here you have Moses provided with Aaron, who will be his right-hand man, his mouthpiece. Sometimes not always for the best. But Moses goes, as he's supposed to, and Aaron goes to the elders, to the leadership. And they do what they're supposed to do. They perform the signs. They bring the message. And the wonderful thing is, at this point, is that the people believe, the people believe, and they fall down and worship. And that's absolutely the best response to God's word and to God's work, is to fall down and worship, to believe and fall down and worship. So, so far, so good. So far, so good for Moses. His He's making the journey. His life's been spared. He's made up with his wife. That's a big thing. Uh, The people are excited, but now he's got to confront Pharaoh. And he's got to confront this great and mighty King Pharaoh. When he faces Pharaoh, he must do so with confidence in the word, trusting that God will keep his word. He's already proven that to Moses numerous times. few words of application here. This is all about deliverance. And the message of deliverance comes to the people, and the question for them is, will you believe this message of deliverance, or will you reject it? Scripture makes it clear that ultimate deliverance, bigger than any deliverance from any earthly bondage, is deliverance from sin. Scripture makes it perfectly clear, especially in the gospel, very pointedly clear, and then in the letters, that this salvation, this deliverance, comes through Christ alone. 
And that work of Christ and the word of Christ, the gospel, must be believed on. And either people confronted with the gospel will either believe it and fall down and worship or reject it. And the disturbing thing is that there were many people in the time of Christ who saw the signs and wonders that Jesus performed and they were very excited. But when it came to submitting to him and bowing down to him and truly believing in him as Savior and worshiping him as Lord, they didn't. And so that's the big picture of this issue of deliverance. And again, the basic theme that we follow throughout for our own selves is the theme of obedience and taking God at his word. But there's just one final very brief application I'd like to make. Now that Moses is finally going to be in Egypt, and the story's certainly not over yet, and we'll look at the end of his story at the very end of Exodus, but I can't help but think that when Moses looked back at where he had come from, that he, that he must have said to himself, how could I have done that? How could I not have trusted God? How could I have argued with God? Why did I do that? Why didn't I obey? Looking back on his journey, it must have pricked his conscience some. And I thought to myself, there's a very personal application, I think, for each one of us here. We can look back on our journeys, wherever we're at right now, assuming we're in Christ, we look back and we say, what was I thinking when I did that? Why did I do that? Why didn't I trust God? Why did I disobey God? And we can look back at our foibles, more pointedly our sins, and we can grieve and we can obsess on them, but there comes a point where we need to let them go and say that God in his sovereignty, first of all, God in his mercy has forgiven us if we've repented. But secondly, in his sovereignty, somehow, and I don't get it, and I'm sure you don't get it, somehow even our sin plays into his redeeming us and bringing us to the point of deliverance. He's delivered us from our sins. And the great thing is that he will completely deliver us from our sins someday. We say, along with Paul, as he struggles with that inward struggle, certainly Paul had to remember some of the things he had done, like Moses would have to think about the things he had done, and, and say, I have this inward struggle. My past sins haunt me sometimes. My current struggle is very intense sometimes. I do things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I should do. Who will deliver me? Who will deliver me from this body of corruption? His answer is Jesus Christ. And so the saint can say now, I've been delivered from my sin. I've been forgiven. My past is my past. And by God's grace, I'm going to resolve to walk in his ways for the rest of my life. But one day, I'll finally be delivered from all of this sin, from my own corruption. Christ has delivered me and he will deliver me. Thank God for his mercy and for his grace and for his patience with the likes of us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have called us to obey and to follow you, to take you at your word and to trust in you. 
And Lord, that truly is the desire of our own hearts. But as we see with your servant Moses, we see much of ourselves that there are fits and starts. Lord, there are many things that we regret. But Lord, we know that we can trust in you because you ultimately are our deliverer. You've forgiven us of our sins. We pray that in response to your mercy and your kindness to us, that we would take you at your word and that we, by your grace, would strive to obey you and serve you well. Lord, continue to grant your grace to your servants here tonight that we might walk in your ways. Lord, we long and look forward to being with you. In the meantime, Lord, may we serve you with whole hearts. We pray this in the name of our Savior, the firstborn among many, the perfect covenant perfect covenant head who's gone before us, blazing a trail for us to one day enter your presence with great joy. And we come to you in his name, in the help of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our closing hymn is Teach Me, O Lord, Thy Way of Truth. That is page 334 in the Red Psalter.